42. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because what you said, now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. So King's Quest students, first through fifth grade today, first through fifth grade, you can now head to the lobby and find your teachers. You got it. You got it. You got it. <laughs> Lori says the rest of you may be seated in case you didn't hear her. like the fun, just real stuff of life that happens, right? As I said, it's good to be with you guys. We are continuing our series on the missional identity of God's people today. And what we want to do is take a slight pivot in in this series over the next few weeks. And the idea is we have been looking kind of from the beginning of scripture all the way through. Jake led us in the book of Revelation last week at um, this, this concept of the missional identity of God's people. That you, if you are someone who claims to follow Jesus, part of that gig is we partner with God on mission. That's part of the core identity of who we are as God's people. And we've looked at this from um, Abraham, right? God entering into this covenant with Abraham and, and calling his family to be this missional people who would, who would be blessed so that others would be blessed, right? Blessed to be a blessing. We looked at this uh, in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai that before God gives the Ten Commandments to his people, he forms their identity. They're a treasured possession. They're a holy nation. They're a kingdom of priests, right? And and we've kind of followed this throughout. We've talked about um, how as God's people who are engaged in mission, we are a people of justice. Uh, We've talked about um, how as God's people, we are sent. We're sent to the nations. Uh, We're sent with the power of the spirit. And so now we kind of want to look at a few case studies, We're going to look at some stories of people in scripture who have encountered Jesus, been radically transformed, and are now living on mission, right? What does this look like? For me, this is helpful because if I ever play a game with you that I've not played before and you try to explain the instructions, I don't get it. I need to like actually play the game. Like I need that one like practice round, right? Like the slow round where you can like walk through and show me what the cards do and and how to move and all those things. For whatever reason, when we just talk about it, like my brain can't process it. So what we wanna do is look at people who are doing it or who have done it in scripture to inform how we're playing the game now or how we're living life on mission now. Does that make sense? All right, you guys are with me, thank you. So we're gonna be looking at this story of the woman at the well. If you've been around church for a while, this may be a story that's somewhat familiar. It's one of my favorite stories. Um, And we're gonna spend just a brief moment, like super fast Zoom highlight reel of, of what is normally preached about this woman's story. And this is her interaction with Jesus. So this was a Samaritan woman 
Um, this was a woman who was at a well where she would gather water for the needs of, of her family and herself throughout the day in the middle of the day, which is not typical. We're gonna dive in and, and, and figure out why. If you guys notice, I got the page number on the slides. My technology game, I'm telling you guys, is really stepping up. So if you have the Pew Bible, we're on page 889, uh, and, and we're going to start there. Let's start in verse 4, chap, John chapter 4, verse 4. Now he, this is Jesus, had to go through Samaria, which was uh, a place that good Jewish people would not go. There's a long history uh, between the Jews and the Samaritans. When, when God's people were um, held captive by Babylon and Assyria and carried into exile into the Babylonian kingdom, uh, the Samaritans were people who stayed behind and they intermarried with other nations. So the Jewish people looked down on Samaritans and they would be considered unclean to go through their land. But here we notice something about Jesus. Jesus had to go there is what John tells us. This is interesting. Most Jews would go the extra miles to go around Samaria, Samaria right, to, to avoid these people. But Jesus had to go there. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now, there's strange things happening in this story. Typically, women in this time, in this geographic location, would get water together. They would go to the well together in community, help one another, communicate with one another, talk with one another. This was a social time. This was a time of inclusion and friendship and, and, and something the community did together uh, early in the day, not at the sixth hour. At the sixth hour, remember this is a desert region, it was hot. So the sixth hour would be avoided, but for some reason this woman is at the well at the sixth hour of the day when it's hot. And Jesus, who we would assume is a good Jewish man, should be avoiding this entire region. He should definitely be avoiding this woman, especially a single woman alone at the well. But Jesus speaks to her. Jesus engages her. He asks her for a drink. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This conversation is going all kinds of places from the history of the well to uh, our, our biology of needing water to live. What is Jesus talking about? He's going to give her water that will well up to eternal life. She'll never thirst again. I wonder what that spoke to her in that moment. This woman who's alone. 
coming to the well day after day, reminded that she is not part of the community. I wonder what that would have spoke to her, the hope of this water, that she would never thirst again. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Understatement of the year. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And not just in Jerusalem or Samaria, but also in Long Beach. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. So we have this scene where Jesus, for the first time in John's gospel, is revealing his true identity as Messiah to this woman, the Samaritan woman, who's an outcast of her city, who's alone, seeking water at the hottest part of the day. Now, what I just read, we touched on all kinds of historic things, theological things, where's worship gonna happen, the promise foretold Messiah. All, all, there's so much content here, and there are people who are way better preachers who have talked about this. Google their sermons and they'll break all that down for you, all right? But what we're gonna talk about today is actually what comes next. When you fast forward in the story, the disciples come back, the woman's run off to, to her town, the disciples come back, they have food, they brought food, and Jesus is saying, I don't need food, what the Father has sent me to do, that's my food, and the disciples are confused like they always are, kind of like we always are, and, and, and Jesus is, is talking with his disciples, and the woman goes back, and she tells the people in her town, she tells the people about Jesus, and this is what's intrigued me about this passage. It's intrigued me how she talks about Jesus. We're going to pick up in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. If you're around church, testimony is familiar. If you're not around church a lot, she's just saying what she has observed. Her testimony. She encountered Jesus and something changed. This is how she describes it. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two more days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This woman's testimony. Now notice the things that she and Jesus talked about. 
all kinds of history, all kinds of religion, all kinds of theology, all of that. When she goes home, what does she say? Not that Jesus says he's the promised Messiah. He told me everything I ever did. And I think as we read through that section, it becomes clear what she's talking about is this interaction with Jesus where he identifies that she has had five husbands and the man he is with is, no, is not her husband. So how do we make sense of this? I've heard this passage preached, and, and especially when I was younger in faith, kind of the approach that was always taken was like, well, you know, this woman clearly has a reputation. This woman's got five husbands, right? Like, what is she, what is she out there, you know, late at night doing? Like, we should look down upon this woman as like a woman of ill repute. I know that our younger kids leave the service, but there's still some kids in here, so I'm trying to be sensitive with some of the ways this woman has been described. But what we need to understand, what we know from history, is that this isn't a woman who's just bouncing from man to man to man. In the ancient Near East, especially in Jewish culture, which the Samaritans would have followed, women didn't have the right, the legal right, to file for divorce. This wasn't her choice. So there's two options. Either this woman has been widowed multiple times, which throughout the gospels, widows are normally very clearly identified, or this woman has been discarded and discarded and discarded and discarded and discarded five times to the point that she does not draw water with the rest of her community in the cool of the day. To the point that she goes alone when it's hot. She avoids (laughs) the people who know her story. She avoids the people that whisper when she leaves the room. She avoids those people until she meets Jesus. And then we see, the text says, she drops her water jar to run back to her village and tell people about this man who told her everything she ever did. They would have known what that meant. They would have known what that meant for her to be told about everything she ever did. Her story told in front of others. They would have known the implications of this. The woman that's whispered about is now making bold proclamations for everyone in the city to hear. There has been a change. And so as we think about mission, as we think about sharing our faith with others, there are lots of great programs out there They give you, you know, the four basic steps, the four spiritual laws, the three something flashy, the five great points, the whatever, whatever, whatever. What we see in this woman's story is she brings her wounds and her suffering to Jesus and shares that with others. Deep hurt has happened. She has been afflicted. She's been discarded. She's been gossiped about. 
And when she allows Jesus into this place in her heart and he brings healing and restoration, she cannot help but share that with others. There are people way smarter than me that talk about how in the cultural moment in which we find ourselves because of this postmodern movement, trying to talk about things as true or right is basically pointless because everyone has decided upon their own version of true and right. But there's something that's hard to argue, and that's what's beautiful, what's compelling. What resonates deeply within every single one of our souls, whether we have come to know Jesus as Lord or not. And there's something beautiful about this woman's story. There's something compelling about hearing from someone who has walked through great pain and experienced restoration. There was... um, The story goes, there was this uh, Jewish council back in the day that that was uh, uh, questioning and and in this conversation with some some early Christians. And the questions didn't fall along the lines of like, is this right? Is this true? The question all fell along the lines of, is it powerful? Does this Christianity work? Is there a change? Is there a testimony to share? Was was things in their lives one way and then they encountered Jesus and now it's a different way? And we look at this woman's story and we see that. We see that not just in the superficial ways, but in some of the deepest areas of hurt in her life. She's restored back to community. She doesn't wait for them to invite her. A change has happened. She's experienced healing and hope and restoration. She can't help but go share it. She goes back to her home and she tells them about this man who who has told her everything she's ever done. You guys have heard bits and pieces of my testimony. And one of those pieces is um, after Bible college, I I walked away from faith, which is always like the worst commercial for that Bible college. Like, send your kids here and they'll abandon Jesus. Um, That wasn't everyone's experience. That was just mine. But one of the things that brought me back to faith was, um, was a boss that I had. Um, her name was Zetta, and, and Zetta and her husband pastored a local church in, um, in Richmond, just right outside of Oakland, California. And, and she kept trying to get me to come to church, and I was not interested in going to her church. And she's like painting this beautiful picture. She's like, we have this great, it's, it's like a, it's a multi-ethnic church. Now, it was not a multi-ethnic church, right? Like it made grace look like the United Nations. This was an all-black church that became multi-ethnic when the white guy showed up. But what got me there was, um, she told me there was a girl that she thought I would be perfect for me. So I was like, okay. It was not my wife. It's a different story. But so I show up to this church, and it's, you know, like a different tradition than I came to faith in. And so I'm, you know, feeling a little awkward, feeling a little different, and, but, but open, right? Like, let's see, let's see what's going to happen. So they have a traveling evangelist who, who was preaching that day. And I'm like, I, don't, I didn't know that was a thing still. Like, all right, traveling evangelist, let's go. And so the guy's, you know, he's preaching, he's doing his thing, and it's great. And, you know, people are excited. And, and then he says, I have a word from the Lord. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, here we go. I don't, I don't buy it right? My heart's hard. I'm critical, cynical. And and he starts having these words from the Lord for different people in the congregation. Now, his words 
only reinforced my cynicism, right? Because there are literally things you can say. Jesus wants you to know that he loves you. Like, yeah, you can say that to anyone. Jesus wants you to know you should not sin. Like, okay, yeah, this applies to every single person. And he's doing these very generic words from the Lord. And he's, he's like walking up the aisle and he's like at the back. And he's like, okay, I'm done, I'm done. I don't have anything else. And he starts coming back forward and he gets right in front of the pulpit and he stops and he says, oh, no, no, there's one more. And then he points at me. And I'm like, you know, I'm doing the thing like the back here, like this person, like not the brand new white guy who walked in and is already feeling super awkward about this, right? Like not me. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you come up here. And I'm like, wait, no one else had to come up here. Like, why do I need to come up here? Like, I feel real singled out right now. And, and so I, I come up and um, this is going to age me. And probably not a lot of people will remember this. There was a clothing brand called LRG. Okay, two people, thank you. And I was wearing an LRG t-shirt. And, and so he like gets in my face and like pokes my chest. He's like, LRG, the Lord reigns and guides, but you're not letting him. I'm like, oh shoot. And so I look at my boss, I'm like, did you tell him? Like, and he starts speaking words that could only come from the Lord. I don't have like a theological framework for this at this point. I can't make sense of this other than he like, dude has been reading my mail. I don't know what's going on here in this moment, but he starts saying things like, you know the Bible front to back. I had graduated from Bible college, but you're not living one line of it. He said, I know what your deepest fear is. Your deepest fear is that people told you you have spiritual gifts that will be used for ministry, but you've walked away from faith and you think they're dead. That's a lie. They're not dead. They're dormant because you haven't used them. Use them. So now I'm like, oh gosh, this is actually like Jesus is speaking through this man. Like I need to pay attention and I desperately want to get off the stage because it's super awkward. So he finishes up and then my, my boss's husband says, wait, God's giving me a word for him too. And I'm like, come on guys, like how much? Enough is enough, Jesus. And so he comes up and he says, I just have a few things. Number one, you're going to be at this church to restore your faith. Number two, you will not be at this church for long. Number three, you're going to be in ministry and you're going to be on TV for your ministry. And I'm like, yeah, right. Like, you know, because I think like the guys on TBN with like the jets and stuff. And I'm like, that's not, that's not my gig. I'm not, not interested. So about a year and a half later, I find the phone number for my former boss because God has had me at their church, restored my faith, brought me back to the church that I came to faith in, helped to start this like inner city tutoring center ministry through the church. The local news came out and did a story. I was on TV for my ministry. It was incredible. (laughs) It was incredible, but God did that. I don't know how God did that. I don't know if the guy got like audible voice of God, pictures, I don't know. But I know I had an encounter with somebody who told me things about myself that only Jesus could reveal. I don't know how to explain it away. I don't know how to describe it. That's my experience. As soon as I left the church, I got on the phone. I called my parents. You're never going to believe this. They're, my mom's crying. She's like, we've been praying for you for so long. Right? It's like this beautiful moment. I get home. I tell my roommate, I'm like, you're never going to believe what just happened. He's like, this is crazy. Like, I was partying with you last night, and now Jesus is speaking to you. Like, wow, it's a miracle. God does stuff. God does stuff. He speaks. And then it's on us to respond. And we see in this woman's story, God spoke to deep areas of hurt and fear and insecurity. 
and she shares that with others, is that not beautiful? Is that not a compelling way to share our faith? These areas of our past, these areas of our hearts that have been deeply wounded, that we've brought to Jesus and received healing, is that not hopeful? Times I wonder if that's not the most compelling way to share our faith. Yes, we do the work, we engage in justice, we help the vulnerable, we move towards the margins, we do all these things, we, we, we're responsible, we, you know, we press hard into holiness and accountability and worship and praise and gratitude and all of these things, but what if Jesus is also calling us to share what he does through our wounds, through our hurts, through the ways we've been wronged against. One of the most transformative moments I think that I've had happened two summers ago. Um, My family had flown out to Arizona and we were celebrating my 40th birthday. And we were like at this resort and and, um, Aaron and my mom had gone, I think shopping or something like that. And, And I was with my dad and the boys and they're swimming. And, you know, we're just like hanging out, right? It's birthday, like, you know, have a little beverage and, and, and just sitting by the pool. And out of nowhere, my dad, he just looks over and he says, I don't, I don't know how you do this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I watch you with the boys. You're a really good dad. You didn't learn that from me. And I didn't know how much I needed to hear that. But Jesus has been working in my heart, and Jesus has been working in my dad's heart, and he said that to me, and it brought healing. And I've shared that story when we would do martial arts in Arizona with some of the guys that, you know, are older and we're just talking about being dads and the struggles of it and the frustrations and the joys, but more struggles than joys sometimes. And, and just sharing that story, people were like, what? How did that happen? Like, my dad knows Jesus. I don't know how else to describe it. Even our areas of hurt can be used to display God's goodness, God's kingdom. The restoration that Jesus promises and not just promises, but gives us glimpses of. Here's the other thing that I know about this woman's story. As someone who doesn't have a perfect past either, you can't be in five or six different relationships and like not bring your baggage. Okay, maybe you guys can. But for me, I can't be in five or six different relationships and not bring baggage into the relationship. Now, I think sometimes this woman's character is portrayed as this negative, right? She's like, you know, this woman who bounces from man to man to man. Here's the reality. None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. So she's not just the innocent victim. She has some responsibility also, right? Like all of us. That's part of her story. See, we don't just bring the wounds that other people have inflicted on us, but we can also bring those self-inflicted wounds to Jesus. Those mistakes that we've made, those mistakes that we've made and we willingly make again. The mistakes that we've made and we try so hard to not make again, but guess what? We make them again. Those are called sin. We can bring our sin to Jesus. And even that, even our failures can display his goodness. 
right? Because this is what we know. Hurt people hurt people. Somebody way better than me wrote that. We've all experienced hurt and we in turn have harmed others. We don't always do what we intend to do. We aren't always great. Ask my kids, they'll let you know. And so one of the things that's been most difficult, but I think, I hope, I pray, is most profitable as a dad, and Aaron does this too as a mom, is taking the knee, getting down on their level, and saying, what I just did was sin, I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? I say things when I'm upset that I intend to use to hurt you, to pressure you to do what I want. That tells me I'm more concerned with your behavior modification than your discipleship as a fellow brother in Christ. I need to repent from that. I'm not perfect. I need a savior. I say this to my kids because it's true. Because I don't want them growing up associating how I always respond as a dad with their heavenly father. They're going to get a skewed image. So I need to be vulnerable. I need to bring my sin before Jesus and before them in confession. Because the Christian life is not a life of perfection. It's a life of repentance. Jesus doesn't call us to perfection. He provides the perfection on the cross. We receive the blessing of that perfection when we come to him in repentance. That's the story we're trying to communicate with other people. That's the good news, that we are not perfect and we're loved. We are not holy, 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 only he is, and he still forgives us. That's the good news. So trying to cover it up and pretend like we never sin, we never make a mistake, we never do anything wrong, it's silly. It's the antithesis of the message that we're trying to put on display as we engage with God on mission. Now, are we called to holiness? Yes. Does God's spirit dwell inside us and and push us towards godliness, produce fruit of the spirit? Yes, absolutely. And none of us are perfect. None of us have it dialed. We all need Jesus. And so even our faults, even our sins can be stewarded to display what the gospel is like. If you're married, you know this. Your spouse lets you know all the time how imperfect you are. What an opportunity to respond in repentance. Now I'm like preaching to myself because I suck at this. What an opportunity to see that as a way that we are being refined is a way of embodying this good news that we're proclaiming. Not perfect, I don't get it right all the time. I'm really sorry, I'm gonna come to Jesus and ask his help to do better. Is that not the heart of the gospel? Is that not the message of Jesus? He is Lord, we're not, and he still loves us. I love the way my friend Joel Van Dyke uh, says it in his book, Geography of Grace. He describes it in a quote that's coming up, says this, if the the gospel declares anything, it declares that through the wounds of Christ, our wounds become wombs of transformation. If the gospel declares anything, it declares that through the wounds of Christ, our wounds become wombs of transformation. 
Here's the deal, church. It only works if we bring our suffering and our sins to Jesus. Now, what I didn't say is only Jesus, okay? I have done therapy. I have been on medication to help with some things. Jesus uses those things also. It's not an either or. There's like this, uh, this brand that pops up on my Facebook feed, right? It says Jesus and therapy. I'm like, yes. Some of these wounds need help from a professional. Jesus works through that. Just like when we're sick, just like when I wake up and my back's stiff and I take ibuprofen, that's ibuprofen working and the Holy Spirit who inspired somebody however long ago to figure out if you take ibuprofen, your back feels better, right? Christ in all of life. So as we come to Jesus, at different times in my life, I've needed Jesus and a really good therapist. I've needed Jesus and EMDR. I've needed Jesus and the help of a community who is on their knees praying for me. I've needed Jesus and the word of God, which speaks truth. We don't have to be like in one camp or the other camp. Jesus is reconciling all things, including our mental health through mental health professionals. Thank you. Grace talked back. Good job, Grace. You guys did it. I knew it was going to happen one day. I didn't know it would be this one. We can come to Jesus. We can come to Jesus with our childhood trauma. We can come to Jesus with those things that we have not told anyone else about. We can come to Jesus because he is familiar with suffering. We can come to Jesus because he does not avoid pain. He didn't avoid the cross. He prayed to the Father in the garden. He sweat drops of blood, but he moved forward. He moved towards it so that he can carry our suffering. He can carry our sin. He has proven himself trustworthy. And so we can come to him. And I challenge you, I think in coming to him, we may find beautiful opportunities to share our faith with others. As he is healing and restoring and forgiving and inspiring hope and loving us. And so now we're going to move in our service to a time of confession. And this isn't, don't think of this as a time of confession of like, I need to beat myself up for all the bad things that I've done this week. This is a time of confession to bring your hurts before Jesus. This is a time of confession to bring the ways that you have hurt other people before Jesus. This is a time of confession to talk to God about those areas that you have not addressed with him in a very long time. And right now, not just because I'm saying it, but because the spirit is actually doing something, you're feeling prompted. I need to bring this before Jesus. I don't want to. It's scary. It's uncomfortable. He is a good savior. He is trustworthy. He does not avoid the suffering, but he enters in to bring life and light and healing. And so we invite you to come to Jesus. We're going to spend a few moments in silence. Beth and the band are going to play, and then we're going to continue on with our service.